If you would please open your Bibles to the book of Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. We've been studying the book of Titus, that is Paul's letter to Titus. And we've seen that uh, what had happened is that Paul had gone through Crete preaching, but then had moved on and he left Titus behind to organize the congregations, to have leadership uh, developed, uh, appointed, but also uh, to instruct people how they were supposed to behave. And that's one of the striking things about the book of Titus is it really emphasizes outward observable behavior. I mentioned last week that one might be tempted to read the book of Titus, at least up to a certain part in chapter 2, and think that these are just rules and regulations for a new type of social organization. We call it church, but others might call it a social organization. And I think that as Americans, the book of Titus, I think, is hard for us to connect with on different levels. Because we have a very different view of what a congregation or a church is supposed to look like. By way of review, I'm going to talk about two things that I came across this past week that tie in with, that tie in with what we've been looking at thus far. Um, Eugene Peterson has written a book called The Jesus Way. Um, and it's interesting, he says, you know, that we know the verse, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And we really focus on the truth and maybe sort of the life, but the way we kind of ignore. We want to go our own way. And this is what he writes. It's an extended quote, bear with me. A Christian congregation is a company of praying men and women who gather, usually on Sundays, for worship, who then go into the world as salt and light. God's Holy Spirit calls and forms this people. God means to do something with us, and he means to do it in community. We are in on what God is doing, and we are in, it, in on it together. And here is how we are in on it. We become present to what God intends to do with and for us through worship. Become present to the God who is present to us. The operating biblical metaphor regarding worship is sacrifice. We bring ourselves to the altar and let God do with us what he will. We bring ourselves to the Eucharistic table, that is the Lord's Supper, and enter into that grand fourfold shape of the liturgy that shapes us, taking, blessing, breaking, giving. The life of Jesus taken and blessed, broken and distributed. The, that Eucharistic life now shapes our lives as we give ourselves Christ in us to be taken, blessed, broken and distributed in lives of witness and service, justice and healing. But that is not the American way. The great American innovation in congregation is to turn it into a consumer enterprise. We Americans have developed a culture of acquisition, an economy that is dependent on wanting more, requiring more. We have a huge advertising industry designed to stir up appetites we didn't even know we had. We are insatiable. It didn't take long for some of our Christian brothers and sisters to develop consumer congregations. If you have a nation of consumers, obviously the quickest and most effective way to get them into our congregations is to identify what they want and offer it to them, satisfy their fantasies, promise them the moon, recast the gospel in consumer terms. Entertainment, satisfaction, excitement, adventure, problem solving, whatever. 
We are the world's champion consumers, so why shouldn't we have the state-of-the-art consumer churches? Given the conditions prevailing in our culture, this is the best and most effective way that has ever been devised for gathering large and prosperous congregations. There's only one thing wrong. This is not the way in which God brings us into conformity with the life of Jesus and sets us on the way of Jesus' salvation. This is not the way in which we become less and Jesus becomes more. This is not the way in which our sacrificed lives become available to others in justice and service. The cultivation of consumer spirituality is the antithesis of a sacrificial deny-yourself congregation. A consumer church is an antichrist church. Strong words. If we view the church from a consumerist perspective, then I think we will struggle with the book of Titus and Paul's words to Titus. Beyond what might sound like poking into the personal aspect of the lives and the habits of members, it's like, you know, Paul, you know, don't, don't get into my business. Don't tell me how to live. We might wonder, and I've, I've mentioned this, I think, every sermon, how Paul doesn't mention the thing that as Americans we sort of expect of leaders. Uh, a certain charisma, you know, great personality. Um, we want them to be extroverts. We want them to be dynamic. Great speaking ability. Um, wouldn't hurt if they're good looking, have a great personal appearance. So when we read what Paul says, I'm not sure that it connects with us because it doesn't plug into what we are as Americans in our culture. What we need to understand is that choosing someone to be an elder in the congregation requires that we look for qualities that reflect a gracious life, a grace-filled life. I think this is really important. The book of Titus is an important book uh, beyond the fact that it is scripture. Um, and I think we need to bridge, by God's spirit, bridge the gap between where we are culturally and where Paul was as he had Titus appoint leadership. The second thing that I came across this week has to deal with the fact that five times in the book of Titus, um, at least in the NIV, it talks about being self-controlled. The overseer in chapter 1, verse 8, um, rather he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. And then of the older men in chapter 2, teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith in love and in endurance. Of the younger women, the older women are to teach the younger women, uh, then they can train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure. Of the young men, the only qualify, or quality that is mentioned is that they are to be self-controlled. And then finally, in chapter 2, verse 12, um, the grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. One might say, so? Well, it's interesting that the NIV and the ESV have self-controlled, whereas the King James uses very different language. Uh, sober is mentioned twice, sober-minded twice, and to live soberly is mentioned once. 
In Greek, I mentioned this last week, the sense is of being sensible, of being reasonable, of being responsible. You say, well, what's the big difference? If we're not careful, we will think in terms of mind over matter. That is, that somehow you have to control your passions, that you have to be in charge of your own self. When I think, in fact, what Paul is saying is that we need to be thinking before we act. We need to be sensible and reasonable. Otherwise, we will simply be swept along by our passions and usually passions that are our habits. So why come back to this? Well, this past week I came across an article online entitled The Myth of Self-Control. It opens with these words. As the Bible tells it, the first crime committed was a lapse of self-control. Eve was forbidden from tasting the fruit of the tree of knowledge, but temptation, the temptation was too much. It continues, the takeaway from the story was clear. When temptation overcomes willpower, it's a moral failing worthy of punishment. I think the author in this article is, is on to something, um, perhaps not what he imagines, um, but in fact, we are setting ourselves up for failure if we imagine that we have the capacity for self-control, that we have the capacity to control our wills. Um, as though somehow Paul is calling for a stoic way of life uh, in which on our own we have this capacity. Well, then why do we have Romans chapter 7? And by the way, our reading through the Bible, today we come to Romans chapter 7 in our reading in which Paul talks about the the things I want to do, I don't do, the things I don't want to do, I do. Well, Paul, just be self-controlled. I mean, just have self-control. I don't think that's what he's saying. Apart from the grace of God, that's not possible. But I think what he wants is that the believers in Crete should think before they act. They shouldn't be carried away by their passions. They should be reasonable and sensible before they act. Now, I'm not suggesting that this is another form of self-control, that somehow if we just think about things, we will do the right thing every time. Um, What I'm suggesting is that the people of God, we are to be sober. We are to be thoughtful. We are to think before we act. We are to live soberly. And so, um, with apologies to the NIV and the ESV, I think they've really misled us by speaking of being self-controlled as though somehow this is something Christians are able to do. Today we come to the last part of the book of Titus. Last week we ended by looking at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3. And if you will look at those. um, Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and to show true humility toward all men. Here Paul tells Titus to tell the believers in Crete that we are to be subject to the rulers and authorities, that we are to be obedient to rulers and authorities, and we are to be ready to do whatever is good as members of any given society. If you look carefully at these two verses, it appears that Paul is giving us another list of virtues, that these are qualities that should mark the lives of a believer. But the function of these verses is to serve as an appeal for good works directed toward those who are outside. 
in what we begin with today in verse number three, we find a very similar pattern in which the form, we have a list of vices, is quite different from the function. Look, if you would, at verse number three. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. So again, it seems that Paul's giving us a list, but this time it's a list of negative things, of vices. But in fact, his purpose is evangelistic. Simply put, we need to live godly lives before unbelievers, knowing that we used to be like them. So we don't stand up on our high horse somehow looking down on them and saying, you wretches, you terrible sinful people. Uh, We need to realize, yeah, that used to be us. That's the way we used to be. Foolish, disobedient, deceived. What does Paul mean by this list? First of all, foolish means without understanding. It's the contrast, it's the opposite, if you wish, of being sober or being sober-minded. Disobedient to God, deceived or misguided. And as a result of being misguided, then they are then enslaved by their passions. Malice and envy, though we don't often think of them this way, are very self-centered vices. It's me hating someone. It's me wanting what somebody else has. It's about me. The result of this self-centeredness, this sinfulness, is that we are hated and we hate one another. So how is it that Christians are different? If we used to be this way, what, why aren't we that way anymore? Well, verses 4 through 7, one sentence. Um, and here Paul spells out what God has done for us. Look, if you would, in verse 4. But when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. In these verses, Paul tells us of the divine response to the human condition. And he has at least two purposes, I think, here. First of all, to put in front of the the believers in Crete, in a very condensed form, the gospel. This is the good news. This is what God has done. And this is what we are to share with others, so that they will no longer be the things that he describes, foolish, deceived, and so on. But the second reason, and I think this is important at the end of a letter in which he keeps talking about behave, have good behavior, do good works, if you wish, that people can observe. Somewhere in the back of their minds, it might, they might begin to think, oh, I'm a Christian because I do good things. And Paul here at the end of the letter wants to remind them, no, you are Christians because of the grace of God. It is because of what God has done. Verse 4, when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared. The way the sentence begins implies more than it states. The implication is, but when we were unbelievers, like those who are around you today, the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared. 
And we saw this early in the book of Titus, that there are two appearances. The incarnation, when Jesus came into the world, the grace of God was shown. But then when God came into our lives by the Holy Spirit and opened our eyes, and the loving kindness of God was shown to us as well. So what did this loving kindness do? Verse 5, he saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. God saved us. This is the main subject and verb of this long sentence. In the rest of the verse, we are told that the basis of the salvation is his mercy. The what of the salvation, what does it mean to be saved, is rebirth and renewal. The means is by the Holy Spirit. But let's, what does this mean? What does this mean? Let's begin where Paul does. It's not because of anything we have done, righteous things. As I said, the letter is so full of instructions about good living, good behavior, good works, that one might be tempted to sort of slip into that, well, I'm a Christian because I'm a nice person. Um, Somehow we are the people of God because, in fact, we do righteous things. Paul says no. That is not why we are the people of God. We are not good people. We have not done righteous things. It is because of his mercy that God has saved us. In a few verses, we will read that we are justified by his grace. We are only saved from our sinful selves by God's mercy and grace. It's the only way. It is the only way. But what does it mean? It's it's, it's a word we throw around uh, for many of us for decades in our lives. To be saved. What does this mean? that we are saved. Well, Paul uses a couple of metaphors here. Um, He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. So two things, washing of rebirth and renewal. One might argue that doesn't really help me. That really doesn't clear things up for me. What Paul does is condense into these two things the twofold aspect of Christian conversion. First of all, there is a radical transformation of the inner person. This is described as the washing of rebirth. And secondly, there is a restored or a renewed relationship with God. What does the washing refer to? And and here scholars and theologians uh, disagree here and there. The first thing that comes to mind, obviously, is baptism. That when we put our faith in Jesus, we say, I am a child of God, and I want to show that by being baptized. And in baptism, what we have is not something that saves us, but something that shows us what has happened to us. That is, that we have been cleansed, we have been reborn, the rebirth, and we have been renewed. We're also told, by the way, in Romans chapter 6, that baptism is identification with Christ, the way that he was put to death, buried and then resurrected. So in baptism, a person is put into the water and brought out, reflecting these three aspects of what happened to Jesus. But here I think Paul has in mind that it is, in fact, a new birth. Even though it's overused, it is being born again. You become a new person. But there's something else. When we are reborn, we are renewed. And suddenly that distance between us and God because of sin has been bridged. And we are now the children of God. 
This is what it means when we are told that God saves us. Verse 6. Speaking of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. The Spirit has been given to us generously. It's been given to us through the Lord Jesus. We now have new life by the Spirit. And the Spirit has been given to us by the Lord Jesus. You will recall that when God created Adam, he breathed into him the breath of life, the spirit, if you wish. And so in the same way, when, we, when God saves us, he breathes into us his Holy Spirit. And now we have new life. Verse number seven. So that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having hope, having the hope of eternal life. The gift of Jesus has been given to us has renewed our relationship, restored our relationship with God. It has made us right in God's eyes. And the end result is we are now heirs, heirs of the promise of eternal life. That's another thing, eternal life, what does that mean? We usually think in terms of life that never ends. It just goes on and on and on. Um, Which, interestingly enough, oftentimes uh, is distasteful to a number of people. Um, We sort of like there to be an an end. We're used to a beginning, a middle, and an end. And when you speak of eternal life, of something that never ends, um, might get a little queasy. The reality is, I, I think it is never-ending life, but more than that, it is the new creation. We leave from this creation, this life, to eternal life, to the life of the new creation. By the way, This is not the first time eternal life has been mentioned in this letter. It's mentioned in the very second verse at the very beginning of the letter. A faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. It is life in the coming age. We will all die one day unless the Lord Jesus returns. But we will be restored. We will be in the new creation. This is the hope that we have. Verse number eight. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. The expression, a trustworthy saying, is something we find in the pastoral epistles only, and we find it a number of times, um, and they usually come after or before Paul says something rather profound. In this particular case, it comes after. So much so, this trustworthy saying, that if you look in some Greek New Testaments, verses 4 through 7 are indented as though it's poetry, that this is a hymn, that this is a hymn of the early church, such as what we find in Philippians chapter 2. The trustworthy saying is found in those verses. And these are the things that Paul tells Titus to stress to the believers there in Crete. Why? They've already been saved. Why, why do we have to sort of redo this and, and rehash this? So that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. In other words, good works do not lead to salvation. It's not by righteous deeds. But salvation itself leads to us doing what is right. I think for many Christians, even today, The failure to do what is right is the result of having forgotten what God has done. 
if we remember what God has done, if we remember verses 4 through 7, that it's by his mercy and his grace, rebirth, renewal, all these things, then that, in fact, will result in doing what God has called us to do. Now we come to the closing. And in verses 9 through 11, uh, Paul sort of gives a, a last warning, if you wish. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because these are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once and then warn him a second time. After that, have nothing to do with him. You may be sure that such a man is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. By way of contrast with what we just heard in verse number 8, Paul warns Titus to avoid those things that are unprofitable and useless. Avoid foolish genealogies, uh, foolish controversies, genealogies, arguments, quarrels about the law. To be honest, we don't really know what these are. Titus did, Paul did, and the people in Crete knew what these were. Uh, We don't. But Paul is writing to Titus, not to us. He's writing to Titus and he tells him to avoid these things. It's a waste of time. It's useless. Um, Somebody who would want to engage in such things with Titus is a divisive person. That is, he brings division, not unity. Again, I said this in, I think, the second sermon in this series. I think that these false teachers, in fact, could be believers. And they simply have gone off track. They've been misled uh, by other false teachers. But they're part of the congregations. So Paul tells Titus to warn such a person. Warn him once. Warn him a second time. And if he doesn't listen, if he still wants to you know, spend his time talking about all these things, then you need to have nothing to do with him. In essence, he is to be put out of the congregation. That sounds kind of harsh. I mean, if somebody doesn't agree with you, I mean, do you kick them out of the church? But no, such a person is divisive. And if you look at verse number 11, you may be sure that such a man is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. He's condemned himself by being so divisive. And so he is to be put out of the congregation. Then we come to the last four verses. And I have in my notes in bold, this really is a letter. I think we lose sight of that so often. In these last verses, we're reminded that Paul, in fact, is writing to Titus. So at the end of the letter, there are personal greetings and instructions. Verse 12. As soon as I send Artemis and Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis because I've decided to enter there. Do everything you can to help Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way and see that they have everything they need. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order that they may provide for daily necessities and not live unproductive lives. Everyone with me sends you greetings. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Simply put in these verses, real people, real places. This is not once upon a time in a land far, far away. Okay, This is real. These are historical people in places at that time. Paul is sending two additional workers, Artemis and Tychicus, who are to work with Titus in Crete. Paul wants Titus to leave Crete and meet him in Nicopolis, which is in the Adriatic Sea on the Greek side of things. 
Um, he's planning to spend the winter there. By the way, Zenos the lawyer and Apollos, who I think are the ones who have actually brought this letter to Crete, they're probably on their way to Rome. They're on their way somewhere else. Paul says you need to take care of these guys. You need to provide for them. Um, he wants hospitality and generosity to be shown to them. And then in verse number 14, we find sort of final words of instruction. Yeah, the, the believers in Crete, they may not be so familiar with hospitality. You need to be an example to them. They, you need to take care of Zenos and Apollos and provide them with everything that they need. And then he says, greetings from those who are with Paul. Greet those who love us in the faith. Apparently not everybody loves him. Grace be with you all. And looking at this, I'm reminded of the closing passage that our benediction oftentimes comes from. 2 Corinthians 13, 14. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Profound words, very solemn words. But we may forget that this, in fact, is the closing of a letter. Paul had written once again to the Corinthians, and this is how he closes this personal letter. In this series on Titus, we've seen that Paul gives instructions to Titus to appoint elders and overseers who are to have certain qualities or qualifications in their private lives and in their public lives. In a word, they are to be blameless, as we have seen. He is to instruct older men, older women, who in turn are to instruct younger women, young men, and slaves. And these instructions have to do with outward observable behavior, which Paul puts in the category of sound doctrine. But in the end, we need to remember, what it comes down to is this. It is the grace of God that appeared to us in the person of Jesus and at one point in our lives in the past, appeared to us personally in our lives, it is the grace of God that has transformed us, that has given us rebirth, that has restored our relationship with God. For some of us, we became Christians at a very early age. And so to be told that we were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures, living in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. Yeah, that doesn't sound like me. That doesn't sound like the way I ever was. But the reality is we were sinners. As we saw in the series on original sin, we were marked by sin. But God in his grace and his mercy has appeared to us in the person of his son and in our lives by the Holy Spirit and he has saved us. In closing, I want to read to you what I read at the beginning. A Christian congregation is a company of praying men and women who gather usually on Sunday for worship and then go on into the world as salt and light. God's Holy Spirit calls and forms his people. We bring ourselves to the Eucharistic table and enter into that grand fourfold shape of the liturgy that shapes us. Taking, blessing, breaking, and giving. The life of Jesus taken and blessed, broken and distributed. That Eucharistic life now shapes our lives as we give ourselves Christ in us to be taken, blessed, broken, and distributed in the lives of witness and service, justice and healing.
I trust that this study of Titus has been profitable and by God's grace and his spirit that we've been able to sort of bridge this chasm between our modern American thinking of what churches are supposed to be and what Paul tells Titus and indirectly tells us this is what leadership is supposed to be this is what the membership is supposed to be because of the grace of God and because of the grace of God we can then go out and live lives of service broken though we are we are blessed. We have been shown God's mercy and we can proclaim the good news to those around us. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are so thankful that you have shown us mercy and grace. By your Spirit, you have given us new life. As you breathed into Adam, so you by your, you have breathed your spirit into us. And we are new creatures in Christ. Our relationship with you has been restored. But oftentimes we forget this. It's old hat. It's too familiar to us. And we have forgotten to be grateful. We've forgotten that we are not good people. We don't live good lives to the extent that we do. Therefore, you you liked us and you decided to save us. But you, in fact, graciously and mercifully saved us and have left us here to live lives of service, to live lives of sacrifice, of community with other believers. I pray that by your spirit, the distance between us and the book of Titus would be shrunk. That somehow we would have a deeper understanding, an understanding of what your church is supposed to be. The biblical version, not the American version. And may we walk in the way of Jesus. Thank you for bringing us together today. Pray for those that aren't able to be with us, particularly the children that are sick, that you would touch them and raise them up. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.